0: you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Timothy, where we're going to be looking at the last half of last week's sermon that never got spoken. When I was uh, getting ready to move down to Burbank, it seemed like God kind of took everything that could happen and kind of stuck it into the month of August. I was preparing to move to Burbank, putting my house on the market. I was trying to finish a book I was writing for some studies I was doing at Westminster Theological Seminary. I was preaching here on the weekends, going to school in Escondido um, during the week and flying to Idaho um, in the days off. And so uh, I was really all over the place, and one of the things that I was doing in the process of, you know, trying to get the house put on the market and all this stuff is to clean my garage. Now, I'm pretty fanatical, and I have a pretty clean garage, but when you have a triple car garage and it's full of treasures, um, important treasures that um, you have accumulated from different projects uh, for years, um, it's hard to just, you know, brush it away. So I was in the process of sorting through all these partially used chunks of sheetrock and boards and fence slats and a little bit of this and a little bit of that that you might need someday and you don't want to throw it away because it's good. It's good stuff. And so in the process of doing all this, um, I had this especially good collection of electrical supplies. Uh, I had some really good, uh, you know, coils of uh, Romex and... uh, coils of what is called uh, MC cable, uh, armor flex uh, cable. If you don't know what that is, it's not a big deal. But uh, I had all of this, and I was getting ready to bring it down because I discovered that we were buying a fixer upper house, and I thought, I'm going to need this. But after talking to Pat Fogg and uh, Dwayne Romberger, I discovered that they don't use Romex here, that it's not allowed. It's against the law in Burbank. And I thought, oh, no, what am I going to do with my collection? <laughs> and you can't use MC cable. And so what I was going to do with all my nice rolls of MC cable that I've collected, because I went, I used to be a, work in an electrical supply house, and I have degrees in electronics technology, so I was kind of the token electrician, and I had a pretty good batch of this stuff. So I had to give some of my stuff away, because... The laws here were different than the laws there. Well, that's kind of how it is with the law of Moses. The law of Moses in the Old Testament has many things that, that, that we still need to obey. But it's a whole different law system. Some of the things in the Old Testament we don't do. We don't do sacrifice. It's We're under a different code. We don't uh, do the civil laws. We aren't Israel living in the land under the curses of the Deuteronomic Covenant. We're under a new covenant. Yet even though we're under a new covenant, a different covenant, many of the things in the Old Testament still apply. And even in those sections, for instance, like the book of Leviticus there is still things that we need to do. There are principles undergirding the book of Leviticus that we still need to hold to. And just as the electrical codes in Idaho were written to protect people and to protect their houses from burning down, so the code in Burbank has the same underlying principles even though the law might be different. If you were to go to the book of Leviticus, you would discover that... That book teaches God is holy, and God still is holy, that we need to approach a holy God through correct means, and that is still true, that we have to have a blood sacrifice applied to us in substitution because we are sinners in order to approach the holy God, which is still true. And all of these things that Leviticus teaches, even though we don't keep the exact letter of the Levitical Code, yet all the principles underlying that code still applies to us. Just like the electrical code in Idaho has the same purpose as the code in Burbank, even though some of the rules may be a little different And so that's what we learned kind of last week about the law of Moses, that it's still good for us Christians, that it's still appropriate for us Christians. And even though we are under that system of law, yet the whole law contains principles which we are to adhere to as believers in the New Testament. Now, if you have been here in the weeks previous, you have discovered that we're working through this section on false teachers in 1 Timothy, starting in verse 3 and going through, actually goes through the rest of the chapter, but through verse 11 is kind of the the chunk that we've been tackling. And in this section, Paul starts out, after he introduces himself in verse 3, telling Timothy, stay at Ephesus and instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths. Or endless genealogies. Right out of the chute, Paul says, Timothy, you've got to get them to stop doing this. And he points out in verse 5 that, listen, the goal of true instruction, the goal of instruction which God really wants us to be teaching is producing or is to be producing love. Love to God. Love to one's neighbor from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. He says, this is what it's all about. And so he gives us, through the text, this snapshot of these false teachers. And as you look at all the different things he says about them in verses 3 through 7, you get a really good picture of what they're like. Let me just tell you. First, they're among the Christians. Secondly, They taught strange doctrines, myths, and endless genealogies. Third, they hindered the administration or work of God, which is by faith, which tells us that they were trying to promote some sort of works salvation. Fourth, they strayed from the true goal of love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, which means that they were selfish in their hearts. They had defiled defiled consciences and were basically speaking out of pride and hypocrisy. Also, they wanted to be seen as teachers of the law, which again reveals a prideful heart. They were very confident in their false assertions and doctrines. And they were self-deceived, teaching out of ignorance. And finally, their teaching produced nothing but mere speculation and fruitless discussion. And we noticed that last week, this is the perfect description of a certain group of individuals that was really a plague in the New Testament church called the Judaizers. The Judaizers. A group of so-called converted Jews who received Jesus as the Messiah and then after they said, oh, we believe in salvation by grace through faith and they use that kind of phrase, as kind of a wedge, a pry bar to get themselves weaseled into the New Testament church, then they say, oh, by the way, if you aren't baptized, you can't be saved. If you don't speak in tongues, you can't be saved. You have to keep the Sabbath or you can't be saved. And if you use Romex, you won't be saved. (laughs) And so salvation, according to them, was received by grace through faith and kept by works, which means that in reality it was salvation by works kept by works. Because if you're trusting in what you have done to save you, then you aren't trusting in what Christ has done to save you. And that makes you one who is trusting in their works and not trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. This was the whole plague of this group of Judaizers, these false teachers. Their stipulations basically dealt a death blow to the atoning work of Christ on the cross. It nullified grace and promoted salvation by works. And this is why Paul says in verse 3, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. The Judaizers knew that believers loved God's law. They knew they respected the scriptures. They knew that 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 God's word was true and that they were to obey it. And so they come in and they take the believer's devotion to the word of God, and instead of saying, oh, you obey the law to show your love to God, now it's you obey the law so you can get saved. And a lot of people didn't see the bait and switch that was happening. And so that's why Paul has to correct it in this section. So in verses 8 through 11, Paul then goes into this little mini-diatribe about the law, about the law. Now, the problem is, is for the people in his time, they understood the whole background about the law. They understood a lot more about the law than we do. And so, last week, we tried to do some preparatory work to get us primed to understand why this is such a big deal. Because at first reading, you're reading this and go, I mean, you know... Oh, myths and genealogies and wanting to be teachers of law. I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, it doesn't sound that bad, does it? Oh, it's real bad. It's real bad. And from verse 8, we discovered two plain truths. When Paul says this, and let me just read verses 8 through 11, and then we'll go back to verse 8 and summarize what we've done so far. He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for ungodly and sinners, for unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, those who leave their cell phones on in church. No, I'm sorry. And whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, with whom I have been entrusted, with which I have been entrusted, he says here that there's all these sins. He gives eleven of them, which are for these wicked people. But for the righteous, they don't need the law. And in verse eight, he makes it clear that the law is good. And we saw that from Romans seven twelve. The law is holy. It is just. It is good. It is righteous. And so Paul is not saying here, pitch the law. And and quite the contrary, he says, the law is good if you use it lawfully, which implies that Christians are to be using the law. The law is for believers and we're to use it lawfully. Now, having said that, we then moved... To a whole rabbit trail, which we spent quite a bit of time on, looking at the whole idea of what were the Ten Commandments all about? And what were all the laws in the Old Testament all about? I mean, why all these 613 laws? And we discovered that all those 613 laws were basically expansions or detailed explanations or practical ways to apply the Ten Commandments that all those 613 laws could be summarized under the Ten Commandments. And those Ten Commandments, according to Jesus, could be summarized under the two commandments, to love God and love your neighbor, which could really be summarized under the one command, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your might. Jesus said that the entire law and the prophets hang. On the two commands to love God and love your neighbor, which are both ways of expressing love to God, either directly by loving him directly or by loving him indirectly by loving other people. And so the whole law was, we found out last week, was used so that believers could express themselves to God. But the Jews, man, they they blew it. Because even though there's so many statements like that, I mean, you do a little study in Deuteronomy sometime about how many times love me and keep my commandments and, and love of God and keep His commandments and love and keeping to show your love to God and keep His commandments over and over and over again, they just totally ignored that and they got down to, okay, man, we gotta keep everything exactly so we can be righteous. We gotta keep everything exactly so we can get into heaven. And that's what the Judaizers were teaching. We saw in Acts 10 how they showed up and said, listen, or Acts 15, listen, if you don't get circumcised, you Gentiles, you cannot be saved. And the whole Acts council then had to refute that error. So then we moved from the whole concept of The law and its lawful use is showing love to God and love to one's neighbor to the purpose of the law. And even though the ultimate purpose, the grand purpose, is showing love to law, there's the scriptures mention a bunch of other purposes. A bunch of other ones. And these are all designed to serve the ultimate purpose of love to God. They're all sub purposes which feed into the ultimate purpose. For instance, law shows us we are sinners. It shows us the depths of our depravity, our inability to keep God's holy standard. We see this in passages like Romans seven nine through eleven. It causes God's wrath to come upon us. We see this in like Romans four fifteen. God's wrath comes upon us. The law shows us the wrath of God abiding on us. Paul goes into a huge discussion in Galatians talking about the law like a jailer. Like a jailer that has taken each one of us and thrown us in the cage and locked us in there and made us guilty and under condemnation and judgment, holding us in bondage until a tutor could come and lead us to Christ. But see, all of those things, the conviction of sin, the the realization of God's judgment, the, uh, the guilt that you can't keep God's perfect holy standard, the tutor are all designed to bring unbelievers to the place where they receive Christ so that they can become lovers of God. The law is part of the gospel in that it is the mechanism by which men see their sinners. You know, you have to see your sinner before you see you need a savior. And what is sin? Do you remember John's classic definition of sin? 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You see, you have to have law to see the violation so that you know you need a Savior. That is why the law and gospel are so tightly intertwined. Law leads to sin, which leads to judgment, condemnation, desperation, search for the Savior. Jesus is there, the Savior. You receive the free gift. Now you're set free from the punishment of the law. And you can love God by obeying his commandments without any guilt, without any condemnation, without the curse of Deuteronomy because Christ took that curse upon himself. Now turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And I want to show you this text as... We've read it a lot of times, and it's it's kind of a confusing passage, but in light of what we've just learned, it's really clear. It's really clear. It's got some great things in there, how the law actually is a tool to bring us to salvation so that we might become lovers of God. Now, notice what he says there. We already know the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ, but look at 1 John 4, verse 7. John writes this, Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now, just stop there. That tells you that if you aren't a lover of God, if you aren't a lover, you don't know God because everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love God, he says does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, or that which satisfies the wrath of God for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, We ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John makes it crystal clear here that when you come to salvation, that's what makes you a lover of God and a lover of other men. And isn't that exactly what Jesus said? The great commandment is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that exactly what Paul says when he says love is the fulfillment of the law? But he does not say love is the eradication of the law, is the wiping out of the law, is the throwing away of the law. And it helps us understand how the goal of Sound doctrine is love, and that's why he says what he says in verse 5, the goal of our instruction is love. Now, a very important other lesson we learned last week is to understand the background to Paul's statements when he discusses the law in his many epistles. So often, when we're coming to Paul's statements, we see him say things like, Cursed is the man who hung in the tree, and you who are being justified, trying to be justified by life, you have fallen from grace. And, and, you know, he makes all these harsh statements. You know, we're no longer under law, no longer under law. And it can make you think, like, oh, well. You know, I'm just, I guess we just tear out our Old Testaments and throw them away. And, and pe- people, Christians, they often think, well, Man, Paul really comes down on the law. And he's, he's really negative to it, man. I don't know if we should go back there in our Old Testament. I mean, that's scary. I mean, I don't want to go under the condemnation that he's throwing out there. But listen, Paul is not condemning the law. Instead, he is condemning the wrongful use of the law. And if you were to look in the context of any of those passages which you think are negative towards the law, you will discover they are not negative towards the law. They are negative towards those who are using the law for unlawful means. Paul, on the contrary, says the law is holy, it is just, it is good. Therefore, when you read the New Testament, you need to keep that in mind. So having learned that the law is good, that it is useful, that its grand purpose is to make us lovers to God by first leading us to God through Christ, we then got into this statement in verse 9 where Paul says, realizing the fact the law is not made for a righteous person. And we ask, well, who is that righteous person? Because if that righteous person is us, then we can throw away the Old Testament. We can throw away the law. Because we don't need it. Some people, some commentators, and it kind of amazes me, say that what Paul is saying here is that law is not made for believers. Because through Christ we have been made righteous, which is true. And that through Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us or reckoned to us, which is true. And therefore we don't need law, which is false. False. These things are true about salvation, but the righteous person in this text is not the believer. Just several reasons why we noted last week, because verse 8 says there's a lawful use of the law, which means that even for believers, there's a purpose for the law in our lives. Secondly, many scriptures in both the Old and New Testament Tell us to love the law, to meditate on the law, to study the law, to obey the law. I mean, sin is lawless, which means to not sin is to obey God's law. And so law is for believers. And third, there is this interesting statement at the end of verse 10 lurked there, where he says, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. And after he lists all these sins, he says... Whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now, all those sins mentioned there are violations of the Ten Commandments, which tells us that sound teaching must teach people to what? Obey those Ten Commandments. Not to be righteous, but to show their love for God, according to verse 5, which is the goal of all apostolic or true instruction. Now, I believe the righteous person in this text, if he's not the Christian, who is he? He is an unbeliever. So then you ask, but Jack, hold on a second here. Unbelievers aren't righteous. No, they aren't, are they? But if you're a Judaizer, you think you are. You think you're righteous. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees who were mad at him, you know, after he calls Matthew, and Matthew says, hey, man, I've got a lot of influence and in, in, you know, and the among the carnal crowd. So he gets all of his buddies and says, hey, let's have a feast. He invites Jesus there. And Jesus is now um, sitting down with these, quote, tax gatherers and sinners. And the Pharisees are there just beside themselves. This man eats with sinners. <laughs> which revealed the heart, which they thought they weren't sinners. Why? Because they thought they were righteous because they kept the law. That is why Jesus says in Luke 5.32, I have not come to call righteous men, but sinners to repentance. You see, they thought they were righteous, but they weren't. Jesus wasn't saying, oh, I haven't come to you guys who have attained salvation by works. But to those who want salvation by grace, he's not saying that. He's saying you people who think you're righteous, you will never be called because you don't need salvation because you aren't sinners in your own mind. And you first must come to the knowledge of your sin before you're going to look for a savior. They just thought they were self-righteous. In Luke 17 or Luke 15 verse 7, Jesus said at the end of the parable of the lost sheep this, same type of thing. He says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, was Jesus saying, well, only one out of a hundred out there is a sinner. Only one out of a hundred out there actually needs a Savior. No, but when he was addressing the Pharisees who all thought they were righteous because they kept the works or did the works of the law. He says, listen, there's going to be more rejoicing in heaven over this one tax gatherer or whatever than all of you righteous people who don't need repentance. Why? Because they aren't going to be rejoiced over. Why? Because they're trusting in their works, which means they aren't going to heaven. And that's exactly what was happening with the Judaizers. They didn't understand that they were wretched and blind and naked, wretched sinners needing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they were trusting in their good works. So when Paul says, listen, the not the law is not made for righteous persons, meaning the self-righteous person, he says, it's for, look at the end of verse 9 and 10, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for ungodly and sinners and unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers for murderers and moral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. And you're thinking, man, that's a pretty bad batch of people. I'm glad I don't live next door to that guy. I have some news for you. You're one of them. You're all of them. We all are. We all are. Think about it. What does Romans 3 tell us? There are some righteous. Yea, even some? No, there are none righteous. No, not even one. And this goes down all the way down the passage talking about how sin, sinful every single person is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That everybody needs a Savior. That all people need to come to Repentance. And some people would read that list and go, well, man, there's some pretty bad things in there. You know, I just want you to know I have never murdered anybody. Hmm, that's interesting. And, you know, I've never killed my father or mother either. Well, You see, this is what a lot of people don't understand about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were written in the negative form. In other words, they were written... Don't do this. Do you know why? Why does it say, Thou shalt not steal? Why doesn't he put that in the positive? Because if you put it in the positive, you would have volumes and volumes on each commandment. That would mean, be generous this way, this way, this way, this way, this way, ad infinitum, ad nauseum. You know, he doesn't, if, if he would have put it in the positive, Thou shalt not murder, then that means you have to preserve life by. Too many things to mention. But the negatives always condense the commands down to their basic part. But what you need to understand is that just because you don't do the full bone command at the end, that doesn't mean you get off. You see, the commands not only prohibit murder, but every degree of sin that leads up to murder, starting with a little bit of anger towards someone else. And not only that, it also demands that we do the opposite, which means we work hard at preserving life. So if you want to say, I don't murder, then that means you have to avoid every kind of sin to every degree leading up to murder, and you have to do all those positive things which are the opposite of murder, which is preserve life and help life and sustain life and all those other things. And so that's why Jesus said in the Sermon of the Mount, Hey, you think you aren't committing murder? I tell you, you just say fool to your brother. If you're just angry with your brother, fiery hell for breaking that commandment. Oh, you're out there thinking, well, you know, I've never committed adultery. Listen, pal. You just look at a woman and lust after her in your heart and you've already committed adultery. You've broke the commandment. And Jesus brought out the true intent of the law. and showed us how desperately we are in need of a savior. That we're all unholy and all profane. This is why James says if you stumble in one part of the law, you will become guilty of all because you have broke the law as a whole. To love the Lord your God. James says, whoever keeps the whole law and just stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Now, some of you out there are thinking, but Jack, listen, are you sure I'm all those things? I mean, look at those nasty things those people did in verses 9 and 10. I mean, I'm not all of those. Yes, you are. Let me just show you why. Just in case you're wondering that maybe I'm not. First, number one, he gives three sets of couplets of general sins and then moves into the more specific ones. He says, For those, law is for those who are lawless and rebellious. Have you ever done anything to disobey God in any way? Huh, you need the law. Okay, secondly, it says, For the ungodly and for sinners. This would include anyone who showed disrespect for God and who knew what was right to do. And decided to not do it. Which in in actuality is to make yourself God. And now you have broken the first commandment. The commandment to have no other gods before God. And so you need the law. Because the law is for people like you. Third, the law is for unholy and profane. These two words have religious connotation. Unholy means, um, and profane, is, is those who kind of revile those sacred things, usually sacred acts, sacred procedures, um, how we are to worship God. This would be violations of the second commandment, not to have idols and the fourth commandment, to keep holy the Sabbath. And you think, well, yeah, come on, I, I want you to know, man, I have no idols in my house. I have, I have I have no little Buddhas, nothing I've carved with stone, um, no idols. Do hmm. you remember what Samuel told Saul? God tells Samuel to tell Saul, you attack this place, you wipe out everything, don't take anything captive, wipe it all out, it's all under the ban. So what does he do? He saves the king, saves the best animals. And Samuel shows up. What in the world is that sound of sheep bleeding in my ear? Oh, well, I just want you to know that, um, that what we've done is we have saved the best animals to worship God. And Samuel says, listen, to obey is better than sacrifice. And then he tells him this in 1 Samuel fifteen twenty three: For rebellion is the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. If you have ever rebelled against the word of the Lord, you are an idolater, a diviner, because you have set yourself up to be God in God's place. And although we no longer have to observe the Sabbath day, we still need to treat God as holy, When we worship. And how many of us in the middle of our worship. Have uh, thought an unkind thought. Ever. You know a little bitterness. Maybe a little rabbit trail. Thinking of something you shouldn't. Has showed any sort of disrespect. Towards God instead of focused wholly on him. You're a Sabbath breaker. You need the law too. Fourth. Fourth. For those who kill their fathers and mothers, and you think, I have never done this. Yes, you have. Literally it means those who smite their father and mother. And you well, I haven't done that either. Hmm. Have you ever dishonored your father and mother? In any way, to any degree, in anything you've ever said or already done. You have broken the commandment. You have broken the commandment to honor your father and mother. The law is for you. How about for murderers? We saw from Jesus, have you ever been angry with anybody? Said you fool or something worse? You are a murderer. You are a breaker of the sixth commandment. And then it says, immoral men and homosexuals, have you ever had an impure or lustful thought? Have you ever lusted in your heart to commit fornication or adultery or homosexuality or any other deviant sexual thing outside of marriage? You are an adulterer. You have broken the seventh commandment. And then there's kidnappers. And you're thinking, I want you to know, Jack, I have no kids that that don't belong to me at my house. I have never kidnapped anyone. Well, what is this bad? Is there a command that says, thou shall not kidnap? Yes. Not in those exact words. There's a command not to steal. And in the New Testament times, it was really popular for slave traders to steal people's children because they could get a lot of money for them. You steal them, go to the next town, sell them as a slave, they, like Joseph. They're just gone. You get a few bucks, doesn't cost you anything. The children are the most valuable possession that someone has. It's like the ultimate grand theft when you steal somebody's child. And here he says for kidnappers. And you may be thinking but you know I've never stolen anybody's kids, but yes, have you ever taken home a paper clip that wasn't yours? A pencil? Have you ever wanted to take somebody, maybe maybe you have taken something? Maybe you have thought of taking something. You know, maybe there's something sitting out there in that one guy's side yard and he's never used it and it's rusting and you thought you could take you could use that. You might just clean his yard up for him. You have broken the eighth commandment. You need the law. And then it says, for liars and perjurers, if anyone have ever lied, if you have ever sworn something that wasn't true, if your heart, you actually knew that something wasn't quite true, that 14 inch fish is now a 15 inch fish. In your mind, it has grown. You're talking with some guys, and they're all talking about their 12, 13, and 14 inch fish, and all of a sudden that fish that you caught that was 14 inches is now grown. It is now a 15-inch rainbow in your mind. And you're now telling them about how it was, and you justify, well, if he really jerked on his jaw and really stretched it out in the rag, you could probably make it 15 inches. And if you've ever said, no, I mean it, man, I swear. And it wasn't perfectly true. You are a perjurer. You have lied under oath. You've broken the ninth commandment. Then the 10th commandment, to covet, he doesn't even give an example of this because all of the sins above are examples. Coveting is behind almost every single one of these sins. But just to make sure that somebody isn't out there thinking, oh, well, hey, listen, um, you know, there's some things I do and, and I haven't broken every command. He says, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, you need the law. You need God's law. Why? Because law is for people like you. It's for people like me, for sinners. This is why all of us need the law. And as believers, we need the law to bring us to conviction, to show us that, man, we are sinners. We have violated God's command, and we desperately need someone to save us from our own actions. The Judaizers had taken the purpose of the law, which was to... Dearest to God to bring us salvation so we would become lovers of God and they had turned it around and all of a sudden now they've done the bait and switch and now pretty soon people are boasting. They're arguing about myths and genealogies. They're doing fruitless discussion. They're teaching salvation by works. And Paul says these people are like ticks in the New Testament church. They come in and they start sucking the lifeblood of salvation by grace through faith right out of the doctrine of the church. And pretty soon, if they aren't removed, they will destroy the church. So he says, get them out of there. Instruct them not to teach those false things. And so, now we come to verse 10 at the end and verse 11 and I want to just look at some important aspects to the relationship of the law and how that relates to sound teaching. Because he says here at the end and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Sound teaching which he defines as according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Now it's very important that you look at what Paul is saying here because he's saying this. He's saying that When you break the Ten Commandments, you are going against sound teaching. Now, I find this very interesting, and this is why. He doesn't say, and whatever else is contrary to righteous living. Why not? After he lists all these sins, which are sinful behaviors, why doesn't he talk about righteous behavior? Why doesn't he say, whatever is, is contrary to righteous living? To holiness, sanctification, something like that. Why does he say sound teaching? Why does he contrast sinful activity with bad doctrine? Not contrast, good doctrine. He contrasts it with good doctrine. It is bad doctrine. Why is that? Because sound doctrine always produces righteous behavior. And there is no righteous behavior apart from sound doctrine. You can't know how to trust God unless you know what the Bible says. You don't know how to worship God unless you know what the Bible says. You don't know how to believe in Jesus unless you know what the Bible says. You don't know how to do anything that pleases God unless you know what the Bible says. Unless you have sound teaching. And this is so important because oftentimes we think in our mind that behavior has nothing to do with doctrine and that sound doctrine and teaching in New Testament times has nothing to do with the law. When in fact, law is sound doctrine. And that sound doctrine is what God uses to bring people to repentance and what he uses in believers' lives so they can show their love to God. John Stott in his commentary in 1 Timothy and Titus writes this. There is no antithesis between the law and gospel in the moral standards which they teach. The antithesis is in the way of salvation since the law condemns while the gospel justifies. End quote. This is why it is so Important to understand why Paul says he does, says what he does about the law in the context of people who are thinking the law did something which it didn't. Let me just give you six things which Paul says the law doesn't do for the unbeliever. One, it cannot save you. That's one thing the law can't do, it cannot cause you to be justified or declared righteous in God's sight. It cannot make you righteous before God. It cannot give you peace with God. It cannot make you love God or have God love you more. It cannot save you from the curse or wrath of God. Law can do none of that. So you ask, okay, well then if it can't do that, then what does it do? Well, for the unbeliever, it reveals the righteousness of God. It shows them what God's righteous standard is. It makes sin come alive in your life so you are aware of it. So you know that you are a sinner and in need of a Savior. It is a tutor to lead you to Christ, and it gives you wisdom leading to salvation. I mean, Paul said that about Timothy, that he had known the sacred writings of the Old Testament, which gave him wisdom leading to salvation. But then you say, okay, Jack, I see how that works in unbelievers, and I understand how it doesn't work. But what about us? I mean, I'm saved. I'm a believer. I'm in the New Testament. I'm a New Testament person. Now, what about me? Well, you better start being an Old Testament person. Let me give you six purposes why God's law is good for you. It tells us how to live righteously and sensibly in this wicked age. It is the standard by which God's character is mirrored. Secondly, it is profitable for teaching us, for correcting us, for training us in righteousness so that we can be adequate, equipped for every good work. You know, so often people think, well, gosh, you know, the Old Testament, I mean, it's got some good stuff in it, but, you know, do we really need it? Listen to this. If we didn't have the Old Testament, we would have nothing to say about people who did abortions. Nothing. There, all the stuff against abortion is all in the Old Testament. And so often the church will go to the Old Testament and use little pieces for its good, and then the rest of the time they just go, uh, nah. We can pluck this out of the Psalms and out of this out of Deuteronomy and this out of Exodus for abortion. But let's not go there too much because after a while, it's only 77% of God's word. It's only over three-fourths of God's revelation to man. It's like three of the four food groups. I mean, you know, vegetables are okay. And you may be able to survive on them, but I'm telling you. It's good to have some fruit and some meat and some grains and cereals and, you know, dairy products, too. And this is why it is so important that we realize the law is good for us. Not to save us, not to make us righteous, not to swell up our heads, but so we can show love to God. The third thing the law is good for is it gives us examples of both righteous and wicked behavior that we can model our lives after. We look at people in the Old Testament and go, man, that person blew it. Yeah, don't do what they did. Then we look at other people and go, man, that person did great. Do what they did. Fourth, it is for our instruction so we will persevere, be encouraged, and have hope. We look in the Old Testament we see how God delivered other people and we know that in the same way he will deliver us and we can have hope. It reveals the character and nature of God so we can know what God is like. We can see God working through situations. We can see his faithfulness, his compassion, his grace, his severity, his justice, his holiness, uh, his long-suffering, all in the Old Testament. And six, what underlines all of these reasons is it just gives us a way to express our love to God. When we live according to the principles in God's word, we are showing love to God and we will showing love to our neighbor, which is why Paul says what he does. Now listen to this. You know, if you, if you know the book of Romans, you know in chapter 1 he starts condemning people. Oh, yeah, you think you're, you're righteous, you're condemned. You think you, you love God and even though he put his law in your hearts and gave you a conscience... And even though it can be seen through creation, what has been made, you've suppressed the truth and the righteousness. I don't care if you're a moral guy. I don't care if you're a heathen in the jungle. I want you to know there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. All have turned aside. And he goes through this whole thing all the way through chapter 3, about verse 19, and then he switches. He switches and begins to say, and now we understand that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift. By his grace, for by the works of the law, no one will be justified in his sight. And that's when we're about ready to grab our Old Testaments and throw them away. And then listen how he ends that chapter. Romans 3.31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? And then he uses the strongest Greek adversive, may it never be. On the contrary, he says, we establish the law. People, the gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day, and the law is what brings us to a place to see we need Him. It works in the gospel, it's part of the gospel. They're synergistic, they're symbiotic, they're companions, they're twins joined at the hip, Siamese twins. The law brings believers to conviction so they can see they need a savior. It transforms them. Once they come to Christ into lovers of God, lovers of their neighbor. Now I want to show you something. Romans chapter 1, turn there. I just want to show you this. A lot of people they miss this because you know, you're just getting into the book of Romans and and you know, you haven't really got to the juicy stuff after verse 16. And a lot of times we know that The whole theme of Romans is the righteousness of God revealed through faith in Jesus. I mean, it's Paul's magnum opus treatment on how we get saved and all the things related to that. But what we kind of brush through sometimes is the very beginning of the book and the very end of the book because, you know, he's kind of wrapping things up or getting things going. Look at verse 5 of Romans 1. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, speaking of Jesus, to bring about, notice this, the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. Paul said that the apostles came to bring about obedient faith. Not just faith, but obedient faith. And so often we think, oh, now that I've believed, I'm not under law. I can do whatever I want, and God's grace will cover me. I can sin up a storm, no big deal. I can live any way I want because after all, I'm under grace, and Jesus Christ's sacrifice is sufficient, so I'm going to live what I want. No, no, that is the attitude of an unbeliever, a professor who thinks that they can sin against God and and presume upon God's grace. No, true saving faith is preached to bring about obedience to God. Now. Turn to the end of the book, the very end of the book. Romans chapter 16, verse 26. And this is really interesting because, you know, after you get through all the good part of the book, you think you're coming to the end of this and you're thinking, okay, well, now we've pretty much wrapped up. And so right before, um, look at verse 25. He says, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now has been manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith is where it's all at. I mean, that is why God saved us to make for Himself a people obedient, which is the same thing as saying a people who love Him, which is the same thing as saying people who love their neighbors and love God. And that people is how the law fits into our life. So, what have we learned today? Laws for unbelievers, it leads them to Jesus. Laws for believers, it helps us show our love to God. Law leads us to Christ so we can be saved. Law gives us a way to express our love to God. And sound teaching is to tell people to obey because of love for God. True faith is the obedience of the law of God, which we do out of love, not to be saved, not to earn God's favor, because we love Him. And that's how He has told us, We express our love to him. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. By this we know that we have come to love him, John says, if we keep his commandments. So as you leave here today, remember, you were saved to have an obedient faith so you could be a light in a dark world. This is not the salt shaker. Where everybody comes to hide in the shaker. No, we are the salt of the earth. And so when we leave this, we're like little grains of salt being scattered out there. So we can be salt in the dark place, light in the dark place. And so often the church, we come together and we just think we're going to be in our little holy huddle and we're going to hide in our little box and turn our lamp on and don't let any light out. (laughs) My goodness, someone might get saved. Someone might see our obedience and wonder why we're different. And then we might have to share Christ with them. And they might be convicted and might come to repentance No, we need to let our light shine before men and our neighbors. We need to bring about the obedience of faith. And next week, we get to some great stuff. Next week, Paul, after he has said what he does here in this text, after he has exposed the false law teachers and the true meaning of the law, he starts to think, you know... I know this great example, this ultimate example, this premium example of this guy, this person who was an ultimate Pharisee, who thought he was righteous by keeping the law, who who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, born in the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, you know, just everything. And so he gives us a little micro-testimony of his own life as an example of God's grace and what true preaching does, what true teaching, what sound teaching, sound doctrine does to someone, even a Pharisee, who thinks they're self-righteous, who thinks they don't need the law. That's what's coming next week. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbled that you have given us so many good things, so many wonderful ways to express our love to you Oh, Father, how we have often neglected three-quarters of your word because we don't understand what it's for. We don't understand how it applies to us. We don't understand what it means for believers. Father, may we never forget that your word is all good, that it instructs us so that we may be thoroughly furnished, adequately, adequately equipped for every good work. And Father, I pray for those here today who may not know you, who may, upon seeing those sins that we went through, may realize I am that person. I need the law. And I need it to be a tutor to lead me to Christ. If you feel God right now in your heart tugging at you, if you feel the Holy Spirit and the Word of God convicting you that you have never received Jesus Christ as your Savior. I just pray right now in the silence of your heart that you would come to repentance, that you would give your heart to the Lord, that you would receive Christ's perfect righteousness, that you might start obeying out of love and devotion, not out of guilt, not out of a sense of trying to earn your way to heaven or be good before God, because only God is good and only those whom he imputes his goodness to through faith in Christ. Father, we thank you for this text. May we live it in a world that so desperately needs to see our light, so desperately needs to have us be salt. Amen.